The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So Shades, do you know that coming here, Shades Valley, coming here week after week is dangerous? It's, it's dangerous because what we do here, what our goal is here, is to encounter the living and resurrected Christ. Like that's what we're aiming at. You know, in, in, on, in all of our worship, through all of our songs, through prayers, through the word, through the table, through testimony, and yes, even through flags, through all of it, our aim is the same, to encounter Christ. And this is dangerous because Christ will wreck your life. It's dangerous what we do here. There's a, there's a story. It's a true story. true story about a young man. He was not from the States. He was from over in the Middle East. And this guy, he was a, he was a model citizen from the day that he was born. Like if, I'll put it in American terms for us so we can kind of latch on to what was going on. So like if he'd been American, it would be like he was born playing baseball and eating apple pie. And hashtagging every picture of him ever, America. Like, he, he was from the right family, like being a Kennedy or a Vanderbilt. And as this guy grew up, he did everything right. He went to the right schools. Think like Ivy League. He went into a very prestigious profession. He was making a name for himself. He was the most patriotic person ever. If he'd been American, he would have bled red, white, and, and blue. He was, he was on his way up the political ladder all the way to the very top if he wanted. And it looked like he wanted that but the light of jesus broke in he encountered christ and christ wrecked his life he uh you see this man he was from a country where conversion to christianity was illegal and so he lost his job he lost his social standing his name meant nothing anymore in fact he was considered a traitor by his country deserving of death and eventually he would get that eventually he would be put to death. he this man would die christ wrecked his life Has he wrecked yours? It's not typically the way we think of it. Like the typical testimony, I don't know about you, but I grew up going to conferences where you would hear testimonies, and the typical testimony was my life was a wreck. Like I was in a back alley somewhere with a heroin needle hanging out of my arm, and my life was just going down the tubes, and then Jesus came, and now everything's awesome and perfect. That's the typical testimony, but I think that the testimony of Scripture tends to run in the opposite direction. That when we encounter Christ, He takes all the plans, all the purposes we had planned for our life, and He wrecks that and replaces them with His own. As if He has the authority or something like that to do that. Has Christ wrecked your life? This is a dangerous place to where you have come because it's a place where it's not only possible for Christ to wreck your life, but I'm praying for it. I'm a terrible pastor. 
This is what I pray for you, for me, every week as we come to this word. I'm praying that we will encounter Christ and he will wreck everything. I'm praying that for us this morning, that Christ will wreck you. You're welcome. I think in John chapter 11, this is what's happening. People are encountering Christ for who he is, and they see how he has the potential to wreck everything in their lives that they hold dear. And this question kind of hangs in the air for them. What are we to do? In response to what we're seeing about Jesus, what, what, are, what are we to do? That's the question that hangs in the air for each of us this morning. Whether you're a Christian or not, like, like whether through this text this morning, whether you encounter Christ for the first time or the millionth time, it presses, this text presses upon us the question, what are we to do in response to encountering Jesus? I, I, think, I think that this text shows us two things. One, I think it shows us what we want to do, naturally, when we encounter Jesus, what we, what we want to do. And I think it shows us what Christ aims to do which initially looks like wrecking our lives, but I think, I think it's something much, much deeper, much greater than that. So this is what we want to see this morning. Let's see it together. John chapter 11, let's start in verse 45. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Now, if you were not here last week, that verse starts right in the middle of something, and it may sound extremely confusing. If you were to go back, which we don't have time to do, but if you were to go back and read the first 44 verses of the chapter, you will find that what Jesus just did was he just raised Lazarus from the dead in front of a whole bunch of people. And right before he raises Lazarus from the dead, he actually prays for something. Look at that with me, verses 41 and 42. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, this is right before he raises Lazarus, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around so that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus' prayer through what he's doing through raising Lazarus, his prayer is that people's eyes will be opened. They will encounter him for who he is, the very Son of God sent from the Father. I'm praying so that they may believe that you sent me. And in verse 45, what we see where we're beginning today is that Jesus' prayer is being answered. And what we saw, many who had seen what he did believed in him. What confuses me is the word many. You would think it would be the word all. So we're all in front of a tomb and we see a dead guy. He's been dead for four days. His sisters are worried that he stinks because he's rotting. We see a dead guy come out of the grave. Like who's leaving not believing? But apparently only many believe. And this this is a truth that we have seen over and over again throughout this gospel, that when people encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ, when they encounter who Jesus is, there is almost always both acceptance and rejection. If we preach the gospel and all we ever experience is acceptance, we're probably not preaching the gospel. If we preach the gospel and all we experience is rejection, we're probably just being a jerk. Seems that there's always acceptance and rejection, and that's what we see in this text. As it continues, we see 
a large picture, an expanded picture of those who reject. Look at verse 46. But, so in contrast to those who believed, but some of them went to the Pharisees. That's Jesus' number one enemy in the Gospel of John. And they told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, the Sanhedrin, so think of it as like the executive, legislative, and judicial branch of government all rolled into one. Seventy leaders, religious leaders. They gathered this council, the Sanhedrin, and they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. So what we got going on here is some people see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and they still don't believe. And so they go and they tell the Pharisees what happened and the Pharisees still don't believe. And so they go and they tell the Sanhedrin, the whole council, and they still don't believe. Why? I mean, I don't know about you, but there are people in my life, like, like, it looks like there's proof right here. I don't know about you, but there are people in my life who say that they would believe if they just had proof. Like they they just need some undeniable evidence that Jesus actually was who he claimed to be, that he was God in the flesh. But this text seems to suggest that even in the face of proof, people don't believe. Because at the end of the day, people are not accepting or rejecting proof. They're accepting or rejecting the person of Christ. Jesus himself talked about this. If you go to Luke chapter 16, he tells a parable about a man named Lazarus. Not the Lazarus he raised from the dead. It's a parable. This is the only character ever in a parable that Jesus gives a name to. Like, Nobody else in the parable even really gets a name. Except Abraham, but that's because he's a real dude. There's Lazarus and a rich man. They both die. Lazarus ends up in paradise. Rich man is in torment. And rich man's begging. I got five brothers left on earth, just like me, living in their richness and their wealth, completely ignoring God and the things of God. They've got to be warned. And he asked for Lazarus to be sent back saying that his brothers will surely believe if they see someone raised from the dead. And in Luke 16 and verse 31, the response is no. They have the Scriptures, Moses and the prophets, and if they will not believe them, they will not believe even though one raised from the dead. Interesting, just interesting, that later Jesus would raise a man named Lazarus And we have people who still won't believe. I mean, these religious leaders, they acknowledge what Jesus is doing. They don't deny that, right? They say, this man performs many signs. They don't deny that, but they still don't believe. Why? What's going on in them? Uh, My eldest daughter, Karis, she can be just a bit stubborn when it comes to believing certain things. Even when confronted with proof, she gets it in her head that things are a certain way or she wants them to be a certain way. 
okay? And she'll argue with her mother and I, no matter how much evidence we mount to prove our case. For instance, Karis and I were in a conversation recently, and I don't know how we got on this, but we were talking about height growing up and how tall you would be. And I randomly mentioned the fact that both of her younger brothers will likely be taller than her one day. This made no sense. Karis, she insisted they would always be shorter. She would be taller because she's older. And that's the way it works, right? So I presented her with empirical evidence that this is not the case. I'm one of four. I have a younger brother. He's the youngest, and he is the tallest. Your Uncle Joseph, youngest out of all of us, taller than the rest of us. She still refused to believe me. Even staring proof, me, shorter than her uncle, she's staring that in the face. Still refused to believe. Why? Because it would wreck the way she wanted things to be. Could it be that the religious leaders refused to believe in Christ because it would wreck their life? It would wreck the way they wanted things to be. Look at verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. We let Jesus go on, he will wreck everything. The people will follow him. We will lose our popularity. Rome, those were their overlords. They had some amount of autonomy, but Rome was the real power. And say, Rome will see this and and think this is like a messianic uprising, so they'll come, they'll destroy the, the temple. We will lose our place. And they'll destroy our nation. We will lose our power. And I say power... Because when when we first read their words on the surface, it may look like they're concerned about their people, their nation, but, but when we dig down into everything that they say right here, when we dig down into all that the Gospel of John has said about these religious leaders, it becomes clear that they are concerned for themselves. Their own popularity, their own place, their own power, their own glory they've been obsessed with it throughout this gospel john chapter 5 verse 44 i think it is epitomizes their obsession with their own glory that's what we see happening here in the face of proof they still reject the person of christ because he would wreck their life has he wrecked ours like all of us have a way that we want things to be in our lives. Usually, it revolves around our own glory, our own popularity, our own place or possessions or power and all the other P's. And keep going. I come from a Baptist background. I got all the P's in the back pocket. We have a way we want things. We have a way that we want to spend our money. We have a way that we want to spend our time. We have desires about being married or being single or having children. We have desires about our career and a career path that we want to pursue. It's our life, and we want to live it how we want. And then we encounter Christ. 
Like right here in this text, we're confronted with Jesus who claims to be God in the flesh. And it kind of looks like it's true because he raised a man from the dead. Tons of people saw it. Like nobody's, his enemies aren't denying it. They reported it. It's confirmed. Lazarus is alive. Go to Bethany and talk to him. As a matter of fact, it's so disturbing to the religious leaders that if you look at chapter 12, verses 9 to 12, they decide they need to kill Lazarus too. That's a great plan. Let's kill the guy who's been dead once and already brought back to life. That'll fix it. It was real final the first time. They're not even thinking logically here. We all have a way that we want our our life to be, and then we encounter Christ and He wrecks our life. Our life is His to be lived how He wants. Not my life, to be lived how I want. Jesus wrecks that. He, I, he wrecked my life. Like, can I just be legit with you for like, just a moment? I never wanted to pastor. I swore I never would. I'm sorry, it doesn't mean that I don't love you. I do, I do. But I swore I would never pastor. I wanted... To, uh, to go to film school and to get into directing. Don't laugh, Brian. It's not nice. I know I don't have the skill set, but that's beside the point. That's what I wanted. I had a plan. I had a, I had a path. And, and Christ wrecked my life. It's turned out slightly different. And, and please hear me. I know that for me, that means that my entire career path changed. Now I'm in full-time vocational ministry. I am not saying that if Jesus hasn't redirected your life away from your career path, then you're not following Him. You've got to leave your career to go into full-time ministry. I'm not saying that at all. Christ does not always redirect, but He always redefines. And your job, where you are, is not a job. It's a vocation. It's a calling. Every bit is mine is a calling. You've been called right where you are to spread the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. You are in full-time vocational ministry if you clean houses or a stay-at-home mom or a lawyer or in the medical field or you're a full-time student. Wherever you are, you are in full-time vocational ministry to make disciples of Jesus. He wrecks all of our lives and redefines them. Who is it? Is it Jesus? Who is it that's defining the purpose of your life? When, when each of us encounter Him, there's a confrontation and only one of us can be king. And so we all have to ask the question when we encounter Jesus, what are we to do? What are we to do? It's not just our question, it's the question of the religious leaders in John chapter 11. They realize that for Jesus to continue to assert himself as the Christ, it's going to wreck their lives. So they ask, what are we to do? Their response reveals what all of our hearts naturally want to do. See it with me. Verse 49 to 50. See what we naturally want to do in response to Christ. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you. They're all about themselves. They don't really care about the nation and the people. They care about themselves and their own power. It's better for you, for us, for this council. Do you not understand? It is better for you that one man should die for the people 
not that the whole nation should perish. In other words, Jesus could wreck our lives, so it would be better if we wreck Him first. Let's destroy Him before He destroys our popularity, our place, our power, our priorities, our pleasures. I told you there were always more peace. But it's either my way of life dies or he dies. This is a kill or be killed situation. And that's exactly right. Scripture describes our encountering of Christ again and again and again in terms of an old life dying. A life where we defined our priorities, we defined our pleasures, we lived life on our terms. It dies. And we have a new life redefined by Christ. Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified, killed. I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. My old way of life is dead, crucified, gone. A new life and Christ defines it. First, 2 Corinthians 5.17, he phrases it like this. If anyone, so this isn't just Paul, this is all of us. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has, has come. Encountering Christ is a kill or be killed situation. It demands a death to my life as I knew it, my priorities and my pleasures, and life redefined by Christ. The natural reaction of the heart to all of this is to say, I'm not dying to my way of life. The natural reaction is what these guys said. Christ has got to die. He's got to be removed from my life. He's got to be rejected. What are we to do? We are to reject rather than to be wrecked. That's, That's their answer. Can you think of of ways in your life that you reject Christ because you don't want Him to wreck what you've got going? Like even if you're a believer, are there areas of, of your life, my life, where we like defining our priorities and our pleasures And we're afraid to let Jesus near them because we know that He could wreck it. So we reject Him. It may be your job or your love life. A lot of us love to push Jesus away from it. He's going to wreck it. He will. Absolutely, Jesus will wreck your love life because He will take you in one of two directions. Towards singleness or marriage. And both of those things are hard. You'll wreck it. It Maybe maybe secret sins. I can't let Jesus near those. I can't confess those. I can't expose those. It will wreck my life. Maybe for those of you that are parents, it's your kids. Parents are afraid to let Jesus near their kids. I... Because we've had such a boom in college students at Shades over the years, 
I've interacted a lot with parents of college students, with students who are spreading their wings, getting out from under their parents, making choices about where they're going to go in life, and parents are really afraid to let Jesus near their kids. We're afraid of where he might call them and what he might call them to do, risk their lives, or even give their lives. That's not our priority. That's not our, our pleasure Think about in in your life, what are you afraid of Jesus wrecking? The religious leaders in John 11 answer the question, what are we to do with rejection? Let's reject Jesus. Let's put him to, to death. But even in their very words, Caiaphas is the one that states this plan. High priest. And even in Caius's very words, stating their plan, in those words, we see the plan of God. As they explain what they want to do in response to encountering Christ, we see what Christ aims to do. When we encounter him, we see what Christ aims to do in each of us. See that with me. Let's keep going. We're going to reread verses 49 and 50, but we're going to keep on going. All right, so one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now John, our author, comments. He, Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Caiaphas' choice of words here is very interesting. He uses sacrificial language. Like the very construction of the Greek is the exact same way that the Greek version of the Old Testament talks about animal sacrifices. When he says one man should die for, who pair, for the people. It's the same way that you would talk about an animal sacrifice dying for the sins of the people. This is sacrificial language. And Caiaphas is saying more than he knows. That's what John, our author, is pointing out. John says that when Caiaphas is speaking, God is speaking in the midst of that. This is a prophetic word. Christ will die for the Jewish nation. But not in the way that Caiaphas thinks. When he says this, he means one thing. And God is at work and he means something totally different. We see this happen all the time throughout Scripture. The sinful will of man and the perfect righteous will of God collide on the same event. Did it not happen in the cross? The sinful, evil, wicked will of men wanting to put to death Christ and God's perfect, good, righteous, and holy, loving, glorious will at work happens all over the place and it's happening in the words of Caiaphas right here. Caiaphas wants Christ to die to keep him from wrecking all of his people. But Christ will die to redeem the people. He will be the sacrifice, the substitute who takes on the death that the sin of the people deserves. We're at the heart of the Gospel right here. The good news of Jesus. Because God 
is righteous and just. God deals with sin. That's what a righteous and just judge does. They don't let it just go. They deal with it. Because He's loving and He loves His creation, God has promised to deal with sin and remove it and remove all the havoc that it wreaks. We've seen displays of evil very recently within our country and culture, have we not? And does your heart not cry out for it to end? For there to be a close? God has promised an end, a making of all things new. And that's good news, except for the fact that we all contribute to the sinful brokenness of the world. And so if God is going to remove that, it means He's also going to remove us. And we have a name for our removal. It's death. We will die for our sin unless we have someone who can be a substitute. Unless we have Jesus. Jesus had no sin of His own, so He was free to take on ours. Jesus didn't deserve the penalty of death, so He could die ours for us. And He rose three days later from the dead, proving that He did indeed defeat all of our sin and all of the death that it deserved. He paid the price. The biblical word for that is atoned. He made atonement. He paid the price that we owed to set us free from sin and death, took our penalty as our substitute, not to wreck our lives, but to redeem them, to buy them back. We are the ones who had wrecked our lives. We are the ones who have made our lives, our priorities and our pleasures about things that are fleeting and will never satisfy. And Christ works to redeem. He aims to redeem, to buy us back, to bring us to himself, to give us himself the only thing that can satisfy our hearts forever. This is the gospel and it's glorious. This is the heart of the good news. Penal substitutionary atonement. Penal penalty. He paid the penalty. Substitutionary. He was substituted for us. Atonement. He paid it and He paid it all. Christ died for us. But, how can I say us? Look back at verse 51. Didn't verse 51 say that Jesus did this? He died for the nation. For the Jew, that's the Jewish nation. Yes, it says that. But, verse 52 says that Jesus died not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is how I can say that Jesus died for us. He died for people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, of every skin color, and He will gather them all into one new people, the people of God, the children of God. I don't think, I don't think that John, our author, mentions this global purpose of God by accident think he's setting it in direct contrast with the purpose of the Jewish religious leaders. What's their purpose in Jesus' death? They want to keep him from wrecking their people. Christ aims to redeem all people. Their priority, their pleasure is preserving their people. 
Christ's priority, Christ's pleasure is pursuing all people. The religious leaders are right. Christ will totally wreck their lives. He'll take their priorities and their pleasures and completely turn them upside down. Do you see that? They're all about them and their people. He's going to flip that through the gospel. He's about all peoples. Has Christ done that with your priorities and your pleasures? Wrecked them, or better yet, redeemed them. Whether you see this as wrecking or redeeming all depends on perspective. If we put ourselves at the center and we're all about our own glory, it looks like Jesus wrecks our lives. But if Christ is what we want and He is at the center, then He is redeeming us. Do you, do you feel the implications of, of this? Our natural priorities and pleasures being redeemed, completely flipped by, by Christ. I, um, let me get real relevant in application and implication, like unpacking this for us for just a, a moment. Let me just give you one example of the implications of this playing out. So this past week, I watched many, many interviews of the people involved in the violence that we saw unfold in Charlottesville, Virginia. I watched a lot of, of interviews and over and over again I heard white supremacists reference Christianity as a part of their motivation for their ideology and their actions. Now please, hear me shades. Don't hear me through a grid. Just listen to what I'm saying. I'm not trying to get political right now. I'm trying to be truthful. And supremacist ideology, which many of us, if not all of us, have vestiges of in our own hearts. If not with regard to race, then with regard to something else. We all naturally think ourselves superior to others. Whether it be in intellect, or in social standing, or in the clothes we wear, or the cards we drive, whatever it is. It's a natural tendency. We all have vestiges of this. And, and supremacist ideology has as its priority and pleasure the preservation and elevation of one people. That is diametrically opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has its priority and pleasure in Christ's pursuit of all peoples. Supremacist ideology is anti-gospel. As a matter of fact, we want to just get real, Satan was the first to ever consider himself supreme over all others. He was the first supremacist. Supremacist ideology is satanic. Period. But in contrast with Satan, Christ, who is supreme over all, humbled himself to the point of death on a cross for all peoples. Supremacist ideology is anti-Christ. That's why they've got to burn the cross. It's, 
Because the cross is the great leveler of humanity. It declares that we're all the same, all made in the image of God, all rebels against God and in, in, in our sin and in need of Him. And when, through the cross, we are united with Him, we are also united with one another. We become one new people made up of all peoples. The gospel wrecks supremacist ideology. It wrecks its, its priorities and its pleasures. It turns them completely upside down and redeems them so that our priority and our pleasure become the salvation of all peoples, all peoples being gathered together into one new people, the people of God, where there is neither Jew nor Greek nor circumcised or uncircumcised or barbarian or Scythian or slave or free, but Christ is all and in all, according to Colossians 3.11. We are, we are one new people. First Peter 2.9 says it like this, that we are a chosen race. That's not one skin color of people. That's all God's people brought together. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So that, here's why he's done all that, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christ has made us one new people from all peoples so that we can go to all peoples and proclaim this glorious gospel so that we can go into our culture right now, our world right now, our country right now, who is reeling and hurting from racism. We have a gospel that provides hope for reconciliation. It's a different hope than the hope that anybody else is preaching. We, we have a hope that's not found in ourselves, in humanity's innate goodness, and in our ability to do better and to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and for us to fix the world. We've been trying that for a long time. We're not good at it. But we have a hope not found in ourselves but found in the gospel of Jesus Christ who will redeem the world and make all things new. We proclaim the good news that Christ can wreck our self-centered lives and redeem them. Even the most hate-filled supremacist, Jesus can, can redeem them, can, can turn we, we don't lose hope for anybody. He can, he can turn their priorities and pleasures upside down so that they're no longer centered on their own glory but on His. Just like He did for the young Middle Eastern man that we talked about right at the very beginning. Jesus entered in and, and wrecked His life. He took everything that that young man once held dear and He, he wrecked it, including, I told you this man was uber-patriotic, and Jesus even wrecked the, the way this man thought about his own race, his own people, which was as superior to all others. Christ wrecked that and redeemed it. I want you to hear it in his own words. Philippians 3, verses 4-8, through 8, this Middle Eastern man named Paul writes this, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, Everything that I used to think made me superior. 
everything that used to be my priority and all of my pleasures, whatever gain I had, I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that, that I may gain Christ. Christ wrecked Paul's life. He took all of his priorities and pleasures that were centered on Paul's own glory and he turned it all upside down so that he thought of all those things as rubbish. Now his priority, now his pleasure in life and death was Christ and Christ alone. He says that in Philippians 1. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain because I just get more of him. This is what it looks like for Christ to wreck a life. Has he wrecked yours? Has he wrecked mine? Or better yet, has he redeemed it all of it every last part you see even once you come to know christ paul tells us in that same book in philippians to work out our salvation with fear and trembling work it out into every last area of your heart until christ owns it all has he has he redeemed it we've encountered christ through his word this morning now we must ask the question what are we to do verse 53 final verse for us this morning, we see what the religious leaders decide that they are to do. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They reject Christ so that he cannot wreck their life. Will we do the same? Or will we say, come on, Christ, wreck my life flip upside down my priorities and my pleasures so that my priority and my pleasure is you. Let's pray.